Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. This is The Weeds. I'm Jonquilyn Hill. Mom! When you going back in the chair? Yeah. Okay. Being a mom never stops. Yes. Latarsha Proctor loves being a mom. I don't want to stop being a mom. I will forever be a mom until God calls me home. Because them are my babies. Recently, on a cold Wednesday evening, I met with Latarsha on the roof of a library, not too far from the shelter she's currently living in with three of her children. Before she moved into the shelter, she'd lived in the same apartment for 17 years. But it had a lot of issues. The bed bugs, the mice, and the rooms. It was the main ones. My window fell out. It was so cold downstairs. I had to literally turn my my heat on like 90 in my house. Where's all I pay gas and electric? Plus friends. She could see how the living conditions were affecting her kids. My little one, he's 10. He just kept getting sick. So I kept telling them it's molded in my house. And they was like, when they came in, it wasn't molded in. But when I had the inspection come, inspect the people coming in, they was like, it's molded in here. I stopped paying rent when I saw that it was unfitting here for my kids. In D.C., it's legal to withhold rent if your landlord isn't making repairs. It being legal can't stop a landlord from threatening to evict you for missed payments, though. And the very idea of being kicked out was enough for Latarsha to not risk it. You don't want to get an eviction notice at your door, then it pops up in the system when you find a home, try to find a new place. Being evicted can follow someone for years. It can make it harder to find a job, it can tarnish your credit score, and it makes finding housing far more difficult. Latarsha is now looking for a new place, but it's tough to find one that's big enough for her family that she can afford. The data shows us Black women are threatened with eviction and evicted at a higher rate, especially Black women with children, like Latarsha. It's such a prolific problem that some researchers say evictions are to Black women what the prison industrial complex is to Black men, something that can forever change the trajectory of life once you encounter it. And an eviction is rarely ever just an eviction. Getting kicked out can have a domino effect that leaves an impact long after the sheriff shows up and belongings end up on the sidewalk. Lives are upended by evictions, and Latarsha knows that. I've been crying. Like, my sister talks to me every day. Tell me don't cry. I look at my kids and say that I got my kids in this situation that they don't need to be in. 
So for black women that got kids out here, I don't think they need to go through that. They don't deserve to be in the streets. The fact that black women are more likely to be negatively impacted by a lot of things in our society isn't lost on me. Not only because I am a black woman, but because I think you judge how well something is working by its impact on the most marginalized people. And that's what we're doing this month. We picked three areas at the core of the human experience to explore over the next few weeks. Our health, our homes, and our families. What do disparities here signal to us about the weaknesses of our system? It's a series we're calling Black Women And. And this week, we're asking, what do the disproportionately high eviction rates for Black women tell us about housing stability and how we can make it better? To understand more about eviction and its ripple effects, I called someone. I'm Julia Craven, and I am a senior writer and editor with New America's Better Life Lab. Full disclaimer, Julia's also a really good friend of mine. And she told me when it comes to evictions, if all you're thinking about is housing, you're missing some big problems. We tend to see eviction as like a housing issue only, right? But housing is one of the social determinants of health. Like it's critical to being healthy. The most important thing to emphasize is that Evictions completely upend a family's stability. And when you're talking about children in particular, stable housing is critical to healthy childhood development. Kids like routines. They don't like a lot of hoopla, a lot of inconsistency. That's not good for them. And so evictions can lead to low birth weight, premature birth, poor cognitive development, infant mortality, and heightened food insecurity. It can lead to moving into poor housing, overcrowding. It can lead to being unhoused. And there's also this very distinct connection between adversity and childhood and an increased risk of experiencing a lot of adverse health consequences once you age into adulthood. And so the first 1,000 days of a child's life, that's from conception to two years old. That's a very significant period of development for a child's brain, their bodies, their immune systems. And so any stress or instability during that time can affect the baby and affect their future. And so what the eviction lab found, for a lot of kids, more than 10% of children under the age of five live in rental households that are threatened with an eviction each year. And 5.7 of those households are evicted. And so we have these evictions occurring at these really critical moments for children and their development. A few weeks back, my colleague Dylan Scott hosted an episode of The Weeds where he spoke with a researcher and former pastor who talked about the ways in particular Black people experience stress and how so much of it is somatic, how so much of it is in the body. Um, And I can't help but think of that as you're talking about these stressors of eviction, particularly on children. Toxic stress, when kids are exposed to it, they have a higher risk of contracting the common childhood diseases that kids get. And then when these kids become adults, they have an increased chance of developing 
diabetes, heart disease, various cancers, depression, substance abuse disorders, and other mental health conditions. And these are adverse health outcomes that Black people are more likely to experience anyway. Children who have been evicted are also hospitalized more during childhood than kids who have never experienced an eviction. And so this stress has this very clear negative impact on their mental, emotional, and physical well-being. Children who live in poor housing or substandard housing, let's say, are more likely to contract asthma. And they are more likely to have health issues just off of the housing quality being poor. And so when you take it away, (laughs) that also plays a role. So it's just this really sick, very cruel cycle for these kids who don't have any real control over what's happening here. And I would argue that a lot of the times their parents don't either. These are the circumstances that people are born into, and it's really difficult to get out of them. Can you talk a little bit more about that cycle of poverty? So the quote-unquote vicious cycle of poverty, this is a term that I believe Matthew Desmond, um, he's the founder and principal investigator of the Eviction Lab. I believe he coined using those two terms together to describe this in the context of eviction. So basically, after a family is evicted, And they're trying to get it together. So they're trying to secure housing. They're trying to figure out what they're going to do. That can lead to them foregoing medical care, food, climate-appropriate clothing. So, you know, if it's, like, super cold outside. Or if all they have are winter clothes and it's, like, super hot outside. That can lead to them just saying, F that. That's not the concern right now. We need to find a place to live. Mm. Which is very understandable. Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, but it does also worsen health or it can worsen health, I will say. And another part of this vicious cycle of poverty is that mothers who are employed at the time of an eviction are more likely to be laid off or fired due to struggling all of that stress and, you know, focusing on securing housing instead of what they need to do at work that day. And so being evicted is not only a driver of poverty, it's also a driver of multiple circumstances that foster poor health, which puts you into this loop of not really being able to get out or access better economic opportunities for yourself and your family. Yeah, I've you've shared a lot of good numbers with us, and I want to dig a little more into the data. What does eviction look like overall in this country? How many people are we talking about when we talk about people getting evicted? When we talk about the number of actual individuals who are threatened with an eviction, it is 7.6 million people. That's a lot. It is. And the number of people evicted via court order is 3.9 million people every year. Those are the estimates. I think so much of our lives as post-pandemic and pre-pandemic, and I think of how the pandemic has just shaped so much policy. I mean, it's shaped the way we work. And the fact that we're having this conversation over computer versus in real life is because like, it's a result of the pandemic. And it touched evictions too. What impact did that have? Yeah, it, it absolutely did. During the pandemic, I mean, eviction rates actually dropped nationwide. And now they're back on the rise. 
during those first couple years of the pandemic, eviction moratoriums and direct cash rental assistance are what kept people housed. So emergency rental assistance programs, or ERAP, I'll probably start calling it ERAP after this, they distributed $46 billion and kept more than 10 million renters housed. And now a lot of these programs are inactive due to a lack of funding, and evictions are back to pre-pandemic levels in many places. That seems like such a fast rise, too, for it to, like, I don't know, it just, it snapped back to where it was pretty quickly. One thing that I've noticed just, like, reporting on the stuff that I report on is that we very much have the, we as in, like, a country, as a society, have the ability to look out for the most disenfranchised among us, and often the people in power don't do that. There is very much money to stop evictions. There is money for rental assistance programs. This money exists, but it does not get allocated towards these programs. It's not a priority, and that's part of the problem. What are some of the numbers we're seeing around eviction specifically regarding Black women? I want to start with Black renters as a whole and then whittle down. Okay. Black renters make up 18.6% of America's renter population. But Black renters also make up 51.1% of those affected by an eviction filing and 43.4% of those evicted nationally. And so within that, Black women with children are the most vulnerable. And they make up 28.3% of the average annual rate for eviction filings. And 12% of that group is actually evicted via court order. And so this is the highest of any demographic, Black women with children specifically. After the break, the reasons why Black women are more likely to be evicted. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. 
Burroughs' new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Okay, Julia, I want to dig into the why of it all. Why are Black women in particular more likely to be evicted than any other group of people? There's two, like, main buckets here, like, when we think about reasons. The first one is economic disenfranchisement. So because unpaid rent is the primary cause of evictions, um, whether that be informal or formal, for Black moms, this kind of creates a compounded financial burden. So not only are Black mothers more likely to be evicted, 68% of them are their household's sole or primary breadwinner. When that gets compounded with like the racial wealth gap and pay gaps, Black women just typically have less money available to pay their rent. And then we get into the fact that less money to go around, period, really affects the chances of building longer-term financial safety nets, like an emergency fund for job losses. What is it about Black women with children in particular that are more likely to be evicted? Kids are expensive. Um, That's kind of the short of it, right? Kids are expensive. Inflation is real. And so this is actually something that we—so I'm—my program at New America is the Better Life Lab, and— what we notice is that inaccessible childcare options make the fallout from eviction worse. Mm. More than half of Americans live in a childcare desert. And Black women are more likely to live within a childcare desert and have a tougher time accessing affordable childcare options. There was this report last January from the Women's Bureau, which is out of the Department of Labor, and it found that childcare costs between eight and 19.3% of the median family income, and that is per child. <laughs> that is not for every oh child. Gosh. That is for each child. Oh my God, that made my eyes water. Yeah, it, that's crazy. And that's untenable for so many families. And so for Black mothers, that again compounds with racial wealth and pay gaps. That means that on top of trying to afford rent and being the primary breadwinner for their families, they're even less likely to be able to afford to outsource childcare. And the higher eviction rates for families with young children, it appears to track with how expensive childcare is for that same demographic. So the most expensive childcare is going to be for kids zero to five. And um, we also see the most evictions for that demographic as well. 
None of this popped up out of thin air. There are policies in place that create these circumstances. What's the history here behind those policies? The history here is long, (laughs) which is kind of like an unsatisfying answer, right? But one part of this history is man-in-the-house policies. Those prevented mothers from receiving welfare if they were thought to be living with or having an intimate relationship with a single man capable of working for pay and supporting a family, which is wildly paternalistic. Yeah, it's like, that's (laughs) very much in my business. That is, Yeah, right? That's kind of the point of it, right? And so to enforce this rule, caseworkers would pop up at homes in the middle of the night. And this practice disproportionately targeted Black women. And so if a man was thought to be living in the house, and that definition fluctuated depending on who was doing the the popping up... (laughs) the woman's benefits would be threatened. That was struck down by SCOTUS in 1968, but it set the stage for some of the punitive measures we see today. There's this researcher, um, his name is Rahim Kurwa, and he looked into housing voucher regulations and how that history connected with the man-in-the-house policies. And so right now, if you have a housing voucher, You can't have unauthorized residents in your home. So if you're on Section 8, you can't have a quote-unquote unauthorized resident living in the home, which is, again, a way for, like, governments to kind of get in your business, right? So when I was a kid, I grew up in Section 8 housing, and I remember whenever we would have inspections, my mom would have to leave because it was just supposed to be me and my grandmother in the house. Mm. You know, she would have to leave, kind of like pack up any evidence of her living there type thing. So that way we could pass inspection and stay on Section 8. It's not conducive to intergenerational housing either. At all. Like, it it has an impact on, like, yes, this kind of, you know, two-parent family structure that's always sort of been pushed as kind of like the ideal Of American life, but it also impacts intergenerational family structures, too. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I actually actually hadn't thought of it as, like, also reinforcing the nuclear family. Look at you, policy maven. Girl, you know how we get into it. Can't stop. (laughs) (laughs) Can't stop. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about the role in mass incarceration in this, like something I see over and over again whenever I read about this is this idea that evictions are to Black women what mass incarcerations are to Black men. And the argument for that analogy is, you know, when someone's incarcerated, they get out, it's hard to find a job, it kind of becomes a scarlet letter, it makes navigating the world very different. And when you are evicted, that is also on your record. It goes on to make finding housing difficult. Like landlords won't sign a lease with you, or if they will, most of the time, the living circumstances isn't the best because you kind of have to take what you can get. Can you talk about that analogy and also the role that mass incarceration plays in evictions? This is my first time hearing that laid out. 
And in terms of like something following you and preventing you from accessing a necessity like housing, yes, the two are absolutely very similar. As far as like the role that mass incarceration can play explicitly in the rates that we see for Black women in evictions is that a Black woman's name is more likely to be the sole name on a lease. And it's thought that a part of that may be not that a Black man or a Black father is absent from the home, which is a racist stereotype that we hear way too often, but that perhaps because of mass incarceration, because of the prison industrial complex, arrest records being locked up, and because that can create barriers to accessing housing, that might be why his name is not on the lease. These are major issues, and it feels like the policy response often gets paternalistic or very like, it can get very Moynihan report coded very quickly. Yes, it can. And that's why, like, even throughout this interview, like, I've been walking through what I'm saying so carefully because it's like, I think that even when you're explaining this from a historical, like, this is wrong perspective, that level of racism (laughs) is so inherent in a lot of the language used to describe this that I just think it's, it's on people who are talking about this to be very, very careful in their phrasing and come at this from like a human first approach. So that's why I was like, you know, it's not that Black fathers are absent and it's not that all Black men, you know, where a Black woman is the only name on the lease. It's not that all of those situations are ones where like he's been incarcerated. It's just that based on the data, that family wants to stay together and that family needs a place to live And so the way to to go about that may very well be just his name not being on the lease so that that family can have a place to live. And I think that the ways that people navigate these really complex, unfair situations, it's just something that we have to be intentional about because you don't want to sound like Moynihan. I don't know. And I find myself thinking of how to, like, think about these things, phrase these things, because, you know, you don't want to be like, where are the men? And we need also the respectability politics. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Like, girl, it they will jump out. It's hard to say, like, no, that's not that's not what I'm saying. (laughs) I think respectability is such a huge part of this that I'm glad you brought it up. I'm glad you brought it up because I've been dying to talk about it. (laughs) Um, But like whenever we see these policies and like we see the history, it's so rooted in respectability. And even the solutions and the reactions that people have to writing and talking about this work can also be rooted in respectability. When I shared this on Twitter, some of the responses I got were very much like, well, why aren't people working? Like, why aren't people, you know, trying harder? Like, why aren't you paying your rent? And I'm just like, poor people work harder than anybody else in this country. It's like you're dabbling so heavily in these narratives, these incorrect, racist, elitist narratives about people who are on low incomes, people who are living in poverty, people who experience evictions. And really another, like, bolster to, like, these narratives being BS is that 
in terms of Black people experiencing evictions, um, income doesn't even really matter because... I'm glad you said that because even for, like, Black people who are middle class, even for Black people who are upper middle class, they're... That wealth is so precarious compared to so many of their counterparts. Very. Like, all all it takes is one medical emergency. All it takes is one layoff. All it takes is, you know, something happening. And the next thing you know, you've been pushed out of a tax bracket that you were previously in. One thing that came up whenever we were talking with Eviction Lab about this is that they saw in the data— they saw Black families making more than $80,000 a year, more than $100,000 a year, experiencing eviction filings. And they did not see that in white neighborhoods. That does not happen in white neighborhoods within that tax bracket. It's a situation where two things can be true at once, right? It's like low-income wealth loss, really being barred from accessing building wealth. Yeah, All of those things compound for Black Americans and Black families, regardless of where they currently fall as far as income goes. We talked about the health impacts on children, but can you lay out sort of the impact that um, evictions have for adults? Like, we sort of like hinted at, um, you know, this is a thing that follows you around. This is the thing that happens. But what impact does eviction have on adults? Can you lay that out for us? One of the biggest ones is going to be the emotional trauma of the eviction itself. So evictions are traumatic experiences, and I think it's very important to say and emphasize that. When someone experiences an eviction, it's traumatic and it's stressful, and it can lead to emotional trauma. It can lead to depression and other mental health issues. And then when a family or an adult whichever, is able to get rehoused, typically that housing is substandard, which can then expose them to environmental toxins, crime in the neighborhood, police violence, et cetera. And all of that has an adverse effect on their health and well-being. Can you talk about the Scarlet E? The Scarlet E, the E means eviction, and it refers to the fact that unless an eviction case is sealed in court, And this happens regardless of whether or not you won that case in court or not. If you have had an eviction filed against you formally, it pops up on background checks whenever you go to get housing somewhere else. And landlords are not likely to rent to people who have an eviction on their record. So that makes it tougher, once again, to stay housed. So... How do we fix the eviction problem? That's up next, after the break. This week on The Pitch, we're breaking form and introducing a new segment on our show called The Exit. You had your first exit at 18 years old, your second at 24. And then six months later, you start another company. This one's called Shift. The company just exploded overnight. And then you realize, all right, we need more money. So you went out to Sand Hill Road. I'm not a West Coast type. I didn't have a feel for the game, but I figured it out really fast. What did you think when you threw out the number? 
it is very easy to get distracted and excited and thinking about what you're gonna do with your millions. I ran the company out of money. I know my CFO and everybody was thinking, this is nuts. Oh, shipped. <laughs> do you have any regrets about shipped? How Bill Smith, a high school dropout from Birmingham, Alabama, started, scaled, and sold his startup for $550 million in three years. That's this week. Go right now and subscribe to The Pitch wherever you listen to podcasts. Julia, one of the things that I admire about you is your belief that we can live in a better world. You know, you are like Solange in that you can see things you can't imagine. Don't tell me that. <laughs> but it's difficult. I think it's very difficult for a lot of people to imagine a world that's different from the one we live in. And I think that's part of the reason we don't have as much policy experimentation, because people will just say it's not possible and not try. What are your big three policy wishes? So, first of all, thank you. I think a lot of people don't realize that about me, is that I really am very optimistic about what the world can become. Because I... I know I have, like, that tough reporter, these are the problems, like, exterior. So thank you for, like, acknowledging and noticing my optimism about <laughs> things. So my policy wishes. The most important wish is a universal care infrastructure. So this would be, like, one part of a broader reform network for evictions. This would include, but is not limited to, universal child care, particularly for kids ages zero to five, so the kids that aren't in school. Universal summer school and after school programs to help take care of these kids when they are of school age, but not in school. And like, you know, school lets out at 3.30, but your parent works until five or six. And universal paid family and medical leave. All of this would help set families up to better weather the cost of their rents or their mortgages because it would be less things to pay for alongside universal health care and a guaranteed basic income. For a guaranteed basic income, the difference between that and a universal basic income <laughs> is that guaranteed income, they create like a floor that directly addresses the historical and systemic barriers that cause economic hardship. So it's a little bit different than a universal basic income. Can you get into that difference? Guaranteed income, what it does is like it takes a more equitable approach versus like a blanketed approach. Pretty much you're going to provide cash payments to people who are living in poverty or those without a reliable income. And so when you create an income floor, that basically is going to prevent people from dipping below the poverty line. Versus like everyone gets $500 a month, just to throw a number out there. Instead of everyone getting $500 a month, if $500 isn't enough because you live in poverty, you would get more money. You would get an equitable amount of money instead of an equal amount of money. So that's the first one. And the second one which is something I could go on and on about our rental assistance programs. They are so important. <laughs> and so 
(laughs) They're so important. Like basically what a rental assistance program does is it gives money to pay people's back rent. It's kind of self-explanatory in that way. We need robust rental assistance programs. They need to be funded and they need to be accessible to people. So people need to know how to access these programs and then get the funds sent so that they can pay their rent. What's your argument to people who say like, well, that's not fair. I pay my rent. Why are they getting their back rent paid? You know, how do you, what is the counter to that? My my honest counter to that is I was going to say, you can be yourself. honest. I saw the look on your face. I was like, you can be honest. <laughs> my honest counter to that is get over yourself. And that might seem cruel or rash, but, you know, I think that whenever people say, well, I do this, I don't have help. I pay my rent on time. I do this. I think that is so wonderful that you are blessed and privileged enough to be able to pay your rent on time and to pay it in full. I think that is wonderful. I am very, very happy that you're able to do that because I understand what happens when you are not able to do that. And part of living in a better world means setting up systems that help people who are not able to do that. And one day you might be one of the people who needs that help. You don't know. We never know what's going to happen, right? That's my response. You know, it's just like, get off of your high horse for a second and think about the fact that housing should be a human right. It is currently not a human slash guaranteed right for people. And so the least we can do as a society to maintain a healthy, caring world is develop programs that help people stay housed. And then my last thing just to go back to the Scarlet E, the immediate sealing of eviction records. <laughs> mm, that's that's huge. That's big. That's big. It is. It's big, but it's possible and it's happening. <laughs> like, this is something that is happening. Automatic sealing or expungement happens in 10 states as of fall 2023. Some places seal records for all types of eviction records while some will only lock records in particular circumstances. In Arizona, for example, that's one of the states that automatically seals. They will only seal the records in cases filed for back rent or non-compliance with a lease. Okay, that's interesting because I'm like, what other reasons are there to be evicted than those two things? Well, those are like the main reasons. Yeah, yeah. But there are other landlord-tenant kerfluffles that can lead to an eviction being filed. Mm -hmm. Not as common. Do you have any closing thoughts? Like, what's one thing you would want our listeners to walk away with from this conversation or just to know about the state of evictions here in America? The most important thing I want people to know is that in America, evictions and poverty, it is cruel and most importantly, it is unnecessary. During the early years of the pandemic, we had proof that this does not have to be the reality for the millions of people who are threatened with an eviction every year. It doesn't have to be like this. I know it seems like there aren't any real ways to mitigate this problem, but we literally have seen that there are. And there are feasible solutions. There are solutions that we can start working toward 
as a society. And um, I think that that is just so, so necessary for people to remember, as well as the fact that people, literal people on the ground, um, do have the power to also create the worlds that they want to live in. And hopefully it's one where we all take care of the most vulnerable among us, because when you lift up the most marginalized people, you lift up everybody else, too. All right, Julia Craven, thank you so much for joining us on The Weeds. Thank you. This is the first in a multi-part series we're doing this month on how policy impacts Black women. This week, we talked housing. And next week's episode is about relationships, the policies in place that make it hard for Black women to get married. Well, I looked historically, as I said, I went from slavery to the period of social media, and I saw... Uh, repeatedly the separation of Black couples and families, racist, sexist, uh, misogynoir. We want to hear from you. What you think of this episode and any other series you're interested in. Shoot us an email at weeds at vox.com. And if you like this or other episodes, leave us a review and tell a friend about it. That's all for us today. Thank you to Julia Craven and Latarsha Proctor for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Christian Ayala engineered this episode. Melissa Hirsch fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, John Colin Hill. This podcast is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep it that way by going to vox.com give. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.